caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you remember, this is a series on identity, on human identity, and what constitutes human identity. And the reason, uh, it, this is the most important current issue in the world today in a cultural sense. It's not a red herring. It is, in fact, it's always been a vital, vital issue. What is a Kurd? What, is a, uh, what, it, what does it mean to be a Turk who is not a Kurd? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a gay man? What does it mean to be um, a child? What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean and what do these labels and these words uh, have to, these predicates have to do with who I really am? And as you know, the governing theme in the course is that human identity, this is by the way the second to last class on this theme, that human identity in the Bible does not exist. Let me repeat that. In the Bible, human identity is so movable and fluid and so subject to so many different projections and possibilities and is so completely determined by ultimately by God and in this life by external forces that uh, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou lookest upon him. The whole concept of identity is very fluid because if we had identity that we had within ourselves, if we had identity that came from within ourselves because of our families or something about ourselves, we would then inevitably become either self-righteous or despairing we would become self-righteous because we would have something that somebody else doesn't. And the moment you believe that your identity is wrapped up in being a woman, quay being a woman, or wrapped up in being this, that, or the other thing, or a man, if you listen to that astonishingly disturbing monologue by Tom Cruise in the movie Magnolia, you will know uh, that uh, any kind of identity that is held tightly, like a privately held corporation, is the source of self-righteousness and division by its very nature. So identity in Bible terms is not in fact something that human beings have. In the world, people are always looking for it and it's a very common and important search. But we don't, I don't believe uh, that on the basis of the scripture that it exists, except in a very, very uh, fluid and questionable way. And finally, however, uh, the point of the course has been that the identity is a gift. In the Bible, identity comes from somewhere other than yourself. And this is the meaning of, of, the, of, the, uh, of when St. Paul here says that I don't have a righteousness of my own based on law. That means I don't have a status or a sense of myself based on performance. He, he refutes the idea that our status or sense of ourself can be tied to performance. Instead, he says, I have the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ from God. And we'll talk about that more. Whatever his status is, and righteousness is just the New Testament word for status before God, status before judgment. Whatever status I have comes from outside myself. Uh, the... Uh, 
uh, um, there are Latin phrases for this, but I'll just leave it at that. It doesn't come intrinsically, it is extrinsic. At least that's how the Bible sees identity. Now I say that just as I said to sort of give a quickie thumbnail sketch. If you've not been here before, we've talked about social class and identity. We've talked about maleness and femaleness and identity. We've talked about identity as, uh, as it's shaped by our mothers. And then we've had a class on identity as it is shaped by our fathers. Enormously major issues. And uh, today I want to talk about identity as it is shaped by loss. I'll talk today for about 15 minutes about identity as it is shaped by loss. And then I will talk next week about one verse uh, in which <coughs> identity is tied into this um, quite astonishing uh, belief that the Christian community came to have, that, that Jesus was the only person who had ever risen from the dead. And that, by definition, was a miracle of such titanic character that it actually came to be defining for them. Um, let's uh, read together verses 7, 8, and 9. And then I'm going to talk about loss and gain. And I'm going to talk about love, the birth of love. And what's one final word of intro? I gave this talk. I'm, I serve as a kind of uh, as a kind of spiritual uh, advisor or something like that to the Altec Corporation, which is a corporation that's headquartered in Birmingham uh, that makes uh, 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 the rigs and uh, trucks that do high wire work with electrical lines. And I speak to the employees of the Altec Corporation once a month. I succeeded John Claypool in that great honor. And uh, I went through some of this material and I ran into some very interesting and important resistance. So I've had a chance to think about this since I spoke to them because they're very much in the real world and they had a little bit of difficulty in not seeing what I was saying as a bit of a downer. But of course, what else is new? Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, in actual fact, what we're talking about today is the question that defines the birth of two things, love and creativity. I want to argue that the view of identity which was presented here is the origin of authentic love and authentic creativity in the human equation. Uh, so that's how I'll end. Now read with me if you don't mind verses 7, 8, and 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, think with me uh, for a moment about life, your life in particular, uh, your life in particular, as it uh, connects with two words. One of the words is gain, and the other of the words is loss. And uh, if um, you're able to get these things clear <coughs> in uh, your head, your heart uh, and your perspective, you will uh, <coughs> find that uh, what usually happens, which is bitterness, uh, is abreacted and emotionally uh, worked through 
to love. What <coughs> happens in life is that, and you've heard me say this before, but I want to give you one illustration which wraps it up. Uh, what happens in life <coughs> is we think that life is a perpetual moving ahead and gaining. I don't mean just things, obviously that's one, but uh, a family, uh, a child, um, uh, a home, uh, stability, um, uh, a, a economic security, um, a good retirement, uh, success in my chosen work, um, uh, hopefully a clean conscience at the end of it all, a little bit, sort of. Uh, and uh, something like belovedness. We think of life as a, as a, as a movement forward of gain. Uh, it's exemplified very powerfully, what I'm going to say now, in the paintings by, um, by the uh, great uh, American uh, Hudson School uh, painter Thomas Cole in his paintings called The Voyage of Life that I've shown you before and they are given a room of their own in the National Gallery in uh, Washington. Who has seen The Voyage of Life by Thomas Cole? Many of you have seen it and uh, he starts out, the baby comes out from the bliss of the womb and it's really great. Paul Walker's son had a little fever last night and was really sick, he's much better now but was sick in the middle of the night and Paul said, you know, I really felt badly for my four month old child. He, he, last night he, his idyllic existence was changed. He, he, he had to leave his idyllic existence and be sick as all do. Um, I had a son, a little son years ago who had never, who, who once while we were watching an episode of Outer Limits, and he was only uh, two years old and he, he became sick and he threw up and he said, I, I think I threw up. He had never, you know, one of those little babies, he, he, this is the first time to do such a thing. Well, um, the, uh, then the, the second painting shows a young man full of uh, vitality and handsome and full of ambition and there's a great huge tower in the clouds, it's called a castle in the sky and he's coming out get, hoping to go and challenge the, the thing. The third painting is a manhood and he's now in the tremendously uh, rough waters of the shoals of the, uh, you know, the river, the Okoe River and he's in the shoals and overhead are the demons of depression, drunkenness, and suicide that are sort of demons that are kind of etched in a transparent way and he's praying to God as he's having to jettison things that he owns from the boat that he won't go to complete shipwreck. And of course the final painting is the piece of a Christian old age in which the man comes into the shoals and he looks up and here comes the angel with the cross. Uh, Thomas Cole was a very, very earnest and devout Christian. But that is just what life is. Uh, we think it's gain but in fact it's loss. And if you've been into a, visited your grandmother recently uh, or someone you love who's in a nursing home or retirement community, it's all there. You go into the room and there's a, there's a chair where, she, because it's, she's always a she, because the men die. They, they just very, very, we very, very seldom, sometimes, but seldom, uh, most four-fifths of the people we visit over a certain age are female. And what we find there, uh, he, she basically is, is there all day. If she's not in bed, she's in the chair. And, even, and there's a walker and she can get around. There's the loo with a large attachment to the toilet, which is essential. And uh, she, she, and, and over, the, and they, uh, by the, on the little table by the chairs, sometimes there's a Bible or a prayer book or forward day by day or guideposts. So if, because 
I would by definition be visiting someone who was part of the Christian church. And then on the television, which is on all the time, uh, sometimes even because the cleaning lady turns it on and, and the person who lives there doesn't want it on, but you know how hospitals are. And the television's there all the time. And uh, over the television are four pictures. One is a picture of her former husband, and it's usually from about the 1950s. And it's usually sepia, and it's very, very uh, a lovely looking man, but he's been gone a very long time. And then there's a picture of children. Uh, there's a little bit of nerve anxiety about the children, the adult children, because one of them is not all that close to his mom. And uh, there's a little bit of energy there. And then there are pictures of the grandchildren, if there are grandchildren, in their high school graduation uh, uh, robes. And I go to these situations, and you all be there. You all be there, just the same. And here was a, here was a person who might have had a great deal of things in the world or not. But that's where it comes to. Of course, you can have serenity and deep peace in such a situation. Very often, it's they who minister to you. But that's the picture of loss. So what uh, we find, and Paul came to this uh, conclusion based upon the fact that he himself had lost everything that he thought he had. He had this wonderful CV of, of uh, all these things that were in the earlier verses. He had all these things that he had valued, and he had lost them all. He had lost them all, and uh, when he wrote this letter, he was in kind of a kind of a fairly restricted house imprisonment. He wasn't in a formal jail, but he was in a house imprisonment type of deal, and he was reflecting here on the fact that whatever he had, he is now lost, uh, and uh, he says something more. In, in fact, looking back upon it, he seems to see uh, his suffering of the loss of all things, which happens whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be any religion to experience the loss of all things. Just look at your hair. I mean, that's just one possibility. I mean, I, I can't do anything with my hair. I have to put this skunk on my hair. I've told you this, but it's a real terrible, it's an atrocity to me. It's against everything I've ever thought I stood for, you know, in the sort of preppy subculture of the Northeast. The idea of putting stuff in your hair, I mean, this is like wearing socks with loafers. And, uh, but I have to do it. My hair has gotten thinner. It's thinned out. It's doesn't, it doesn't have the same, it's too fine, apparently. And I can't do, it doesn't stay any place. And so um, what, what I, I look like, a, a an older man who's attempting to look youthful. And it's a, so I have to put this stuff on. So I'm losing. You're losing. And uh, we, we, we find that if you, if you see, now I'm getting to something. If you see, <laughs> if you see that your life, if you thought that your life consisted of gain, and again, I'm not just talking about material things. That's too easy. It's too easy to talk about that. That might be one. But if it consisted of a series of achievements or a series of, of, of of challenges overcome, you, when, it, when it doesn't pan out and when it, when it doesn't go that way, it becomes, um, what, what, do you, what do you find happens when, when you thought life was going to be gain, however you would define that, but come to find out it's not worked out that way, even in the best of scenarios. What, what emotion begins to cut into people as they grow older? Begins the B. Bitterness. 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 You you get bitter. And the number of people who are bitter, the number of divorced men and divorced women I meet who have not happily remarried, 
the number of, of people in that situation who are bitter, the number of grown older women and older men who are, who are not as close to their children as they had so dearly hoped and wished and sought to work out, the bitterness that goes to them, the number of men for whom their great and in fact sometimes very idealistic hopes for their professional life didn't really pan out, the bitterness that I find. Uh, my father was a very, very distinguished man in human terms, but he was never elected to a particular board that he thought it was his due to be elected to. And it, to the day he died, he was bitter that he had not been elected to a particular board of an institution that he thought was very much the pinnacle of what he aspired to. Now, that's just one example, but I find as I talk to people, the way that bitterness uh, creeps in uh, because you've been cheated or not been given whatever you felt your due, it's very, very uh, great and powerful. And so if you see life as some form of upward movement involving gain, you will inevitably find that the result is bitterness. What, what we find is that when you see that in the loss there is always the gain, this is the great Christian uh, discontinuity, when you discover that it was in the loss that there was the gain, you then begin to see that God is in charge in a benign manner in your life. Now I can't do the work for you, but um, the, what, what happens in life is in fact that that God works when you are in a position of loss. This is a universal maxim. God works or is able to work when you're in a position of, 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 of loss uh, because that is the time when you're no longer on the upward movement of gaining it somehow for yourself. This is the, the uh, key uh, thing. We're told in Philippians 2 that he, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, did not consider uh, his divinity a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And in the losing is the gaining. Now that's not an abstraction. That's actually how life works. Milton wrote Paradise Lost after he was blind. Beethoven, when did he write the Ninth Symphony? After he was deaf. Lovis Corinth, one of my heroes, the great late expressionist German painter, did his greatest, although he did brilliant work before he had a stroke, his greatest, his so, the Red Crucifixion, which is a painting that's so valuable they wouldn't transfer it to Basel, Switzerland, to St. Louis during the great international exhibit. The Red Christ he painted after his stroke because he had an affinity for the material uh, after his stroke that he never had before his stroke, although his stroke, of course, affected the way he put pen uh, of paint on canvas. And so what we find here is that it is in the loss that we're always able uh, to uh, see uh, the, the power of God uh, profoundly working. And what um, happens is people who have lost uh, uh, their gaining and are found uh, in that moment, and it happens in many times in a life, they discover that they are still loved and that God's uh, relationship to them does not depend on their performance. In fact, it almost is in direct proportion to their messing up. That is such a powerful thing 
that it creates two responses in people. Uh, this happens in marriages and with people, and it happens with God. First, you can love for the first time without reference to yourself. 99.9% .9 of loving is done out of need. I'll repeat that. 99.9% .9 of human loving is done, well, you may, you may be skeptical. I'll, I'll lower that to 85% in the best cases. <laughs> 85% in the best cases uh, of human loving is done out of some need. Let's just back it up to adolescent boys. In adolescent boys' cases, 100% of loving is done out of relationship. And adolescent girls, I'm not equipped to, to discuss that. But um, need loving is what the world does because something, it's, it's, I'm getting something from her. Uh, affirmation, strokes, whatever it is, I'm getting some, something. Um, and when you're loving from loss, uh, loving uh, actually uh, comes from, uh, loving is, is able to be non-self-involved. And everybody here is just waiting for someone to love them in a non-self-involved way. I mean, aren't you? Aren't you not waiting for someone to love you? Or happy when someone does love you in a non-self-involved way? Because they want the good for you not the good for you as it applies to the good for them. Now, I know this happens rarely, but it happens out of loss. It happens out of the humility of loss. And not only does it create uh, the ability, uh, without even asking for it, to love another person. It's the, I'm obviously talking about Victor Hugo here, I'm talking about Jean Valjean. He loses everything, and he gains everything, because he loves totally. I'm talking about every novel Charles Dickens ever wrote. Pip loses everything and he gains everything, which specifically is love, generosity, kindness, compassion. Uh, I'm, written, I'm talking about everything Victor Hugo ever touched and everything Charles Dickens ever wrote, and you add to it. Not Shakespeare, but that's a different case. Uh, what happens is it creates also will. It creates the will to do something. Because when you're no longer out acting out of how does this relate to me, what can I get out of this particular transaction that I'm involved in emotionally or economically or whatever it is, that creates ability of people to take initiatives, what shrinks call risk taking. But I would like to say it frees the will. Now, you know I don't believe in a free will, but let me say that. Man is not free from birth. That is obvious from 12-step programs, and I know many of you don't agree with that. I would say man is not free from birth, but when he is loved in his lack of freedom by Christ, or sometimes Christ's representative in a human being, his will is freed. You see, we do believe in freedom of the will, but only in the next situation, not initially. You are loved, and then you're able to actually do something with your life, as opposed to reacting. I'll finish by this. There is a movie which I heartily recommend. You'll see the first 40 minutes of it with your child, if you have a child, and you'll say, what did he recommend this for? It's called Babe, Pig in the City. Has anyone here seen it? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Well, what am I going to say about... It's a dark, eccentric done by very, very sophisticated Australian adults, um, very tongue-in-cheek, very heavy, and very childlike, extremely brilliant sequel to the first Babe. But what am I going to say about Babe in the City that is so unbelievably counterintuitive? Something happens in that movie that is directly related to what I've just been saying. One thing happens. It's the, the movie's going this way, and then it takes a U-turn. Remember? What? He saves. The pig is being chased by a savage dog who is horrible, truly 
the worst. The, the, the dog is caught on a chain on a suspension bridge over a canal, like in Venice. The dog is suspended, however, from the thing by his hind leg in such a way that his body goes in half in the water. The dog is drowning, and the movie is so quirky and full of so many sort of things of that nature that you, you sort of say, well, maybe that's part of the movie. The pig, who has been chased in order to murder him by this horrible dog with this awful Metallica Guns N' Roses collar, um, is drowning, and the pig has gotten away, and that's the end of it. And then suddenly, to your complete surprise, or out of the corner of the frame, the pig goes and he gets a canoe, and he gradually uh, dog paddles his way over where the dog is drowning, and all these other animals, grim characters, it's all a very grim, grand guignol animal kingdom, and they're all watching this dog drown, this horrible dog, and you're so glad that the pig got away from the dog. And the pig goes, and he rescues the dog. And the dog, once he's recovered, and it's very well done, it's animatronic and it's really well done, the dog says, thank you, pig. And then he takes off his, his horrible studded heavy metal collar and he puts it around the pig's uh, uh, neck. It's obviously the crown of thorns reference. And the dog is completely and radically changed while still being a dog. Now, that is so extraordinarily powerful. You see the parable of the Christian religion enacted in a way that is really quite shocking because you don't expect it in this movie. I heartily recommend it, mainly although I've given it away, so now what is there? Uh, <laughs> but it is, what happens is the dog comes to love as a result of his being rescued, not in his, if I hurt you, please accept my apology, in his murderous, rapacious horribleness, the dog is saved and is completely and totally changed into the hero. Now, that is identity as a gift, uh, love being engendered from prior love, not the other way around, and service and creativity coming naturally out of the experience of loss that is really gain. Thank you for listening to me. Now we've got a few minutes. Who wants to chime in, ask a question, or make a comment about what I've said? Does this mirror your experience? I mean, honestly, when you look at your own gains and your losses, who wants to comment on that? I promise I won't call on you unless you raise your hand. I used to do that, and I learned very, five people left the advent uh, as a result of my making that terrible mistake. So I've learned not to. Esther, stand up if you don't mind. Say what you mean. What do you mean? You don't like the word bitterness. You like the word betterness. Through the losses, we become better. But what you're saying is when bitterness becomes betterness. Is that what you're saying? Wow. For heaven's sake, Esther. Thank you for saying that. Wow. Thank you for saying that. Who wants to? Was there something over there? Rebecca, stand up and say what you have to say. Um, with the laws and the gains you gain from losing, some do that with their laws, but then there's the bitterness, which I have, I 
have people that are better. So who get, who helped me? How do you become not better? How do you become not bitter? Right. Well, that's why the Church of the Advent exists. But not just the Church of the Advent. That's why the Christian Church exists. In ideal, the, church, the Christian Church does not exist to chase away people who want to be free spirits because of legalism. The Christian Church exists to create a prior uh, 